Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is U.S. economy rolling over? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jesse Feldler, founder of Felder Investment Research. Hi, Jesse. It's nice to see you again. Hi. Good to be back, Maggie. Thanks. So we had U.S. consumer, we've been all been waiting for this inflation data for a while. We had U.S. consumer prices CPI index come in a little bit lower than expected, not by a lot, but it seemed to be enough to send those treasury yields lower. Um, we saw U.S. equities, they were a little mixed, but we did see a late push higher. The Nasdaq up over 1%. They're just settling, actually, those prices. But what did you make of the number? And do you think this is a sign that we're going to start to see inflation continue to moderate? I think probably it's going to continue to moderate. You know, we have some tough comparables, you know, year over year through about June, which will make, you know, that disinflationary trend, you know, probably continue through that that time period. I think, you know, what's more important are the 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 bigger picture inflationary forces, right? I think people are still focused on these monthly readings when Really, what's going on is, uh, you know, they're, they're demographic tailwinds to inflation and longer term kind of structural forces to inflation that I, I think are much more important to pay attention to. Because I really think that the big question on everybody's mind is, uh, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously is, is the Fed going to be able to go back to the monetary policy that they pursued for the last 15 years, or are we in a new monetary era where monetary policy has going to be normalized to some extent, you know, based on that that pre-GFC uh, framework, um, I, I think you know that will help. It helps to determine how you look at virtually every different asset class out there. Yeah, and so what that you're you're right. I mean, that's it. In fact, it's funny that you bring that up because just earlier today, um, we had the first of what we're calling the academy sessions, a, a conversation with members and Roger Hurst uh, about trading strategies, how to think about the environment and, and you know, some of the modules if they if they work through the real investing course. And this is one of the things that came up. You know, are we, how are you thinking about this? Is it different or are we going back? And how do we kind of fit that into the frameworks we've been developing? Um, it was really interesting. Where do you fall on that? If that is the big overarching question, how are you thinking about that? Well, it, it, my opinion is that we are in a new monetary era, that this this 15 years of the post-GFD, zero percentage rates uh, and money printing came to an end, um, right? We had, we saw a huge, we saw really kind of hit its its peak right in the, you know, response to the, the onset of the pandemic where we printed trillions of dollars in new money, interest mm -hmm. rates went back to zero. 
And we, we've now seen inflation take off as a response to that kind of over, uh, overdoing it on both fiscal and monetary policy. So I think that that marks a kind of a demarcation point where no longer can the Fed pursue these kinds of policies without there being any consequences whatsoever. Um, it's pretty clear that now the consequence of, of overdoing it is inflation. And so we have to go back to a more normal uh, monetary policy pre-GFC. Pre if that's the case, then it doesn't matter if the, the Fed you know, uh, does in fact pivot and maybe they lower rates to 3% or something, we're not going back to zero again. And so a lot of the problems that we've seen crop up with regional banks and things of, you know, based on just the normalization of interest rates, mm. those problems aren't going away. There's been, you know, as you know, Stan Druckenmiller said this week, when you give out free money, people do stupid things. When you give out free money for 15 years, people do really, really stupid things. And so now that you have to, you know, there's no more free money, we're starting to find out what are those stupid things that happened. And if interest rates don't go back to zero, we're going to just keep finding out there's going to be more bodies, you know, coming to the surface of Stan. Yeah, said. yeah. So, which is, you know, I think is going to scare people when they when they think about that and hear that. I, I'm going to, I want to bring a question in because I think it's, I think it's exactly in line with what we're talking about right now, but we'll go back to those bodies in a second. You always have to, right? Um, but this is from Paul. Jesse, you uh, wrote recently, there has been no real growth in the economy since 2008, and the economy's actually been in decline for decades and worsened during QE. Can you give a brief explanation? It fits perfectly into the question we asked at the top as well. Yeah, I mean, I, that was a blog post I put out today, and I, and I basically, you know, when Ben Bernanke started quantitative easing, he said it was in order to create a wealth effect. We're going to boost asset prices, going to make people feel wealthier. They're going to spend more, and it's going to create a virtuous circle of growth uh, that creates incomes and that creates growth and, and kind of and so on and so forth. They were effective in boosting asset prices. Uh, if you look at you know household net worth relative to GDP, it's off the charts. I mean, it's just it's it's gone you know parabolic in the last few years until until last year. Um, now, whether that's actually to the economy, I think is open for debate, but from all the signs I look at, the economy hasn't done nearly as well as asset prices. And when you look at these things in relative to the money supply, so let's look at household net worth relative to the growth in M2, it's actually just flatlined. Uh, you know, it, it's declined since 2008, and it's essentially been flatlined for the last 15 years. So all the growth in wealth is just commensurate with the growth in the money supply. So it's it's really, uh, you know, just a money illusion. I think if you look at it in terms of net worth relative to M2, and if you look at the economy relative to the growth in the money supply, it's been in structural decline for, you know, well over, you know, since pre-GFC. But during the QE era, we've seen money printing grow a lot faster than the economy, which suggests to me that the money printing has been very successful at creating inflation in the last few years. It hasn't been successful in creating economic growth, as Ben Bernanke suggested that it would way back in 2010. So interesting. So what, where, how do we juice the growth then? How do we solve the growth problem? Well, it's funny because uh, my friend Jim Bruce put out a, mo a movie after the, the great financial crisis called Money for Nothing. And there was a quote from that movie that didn't actually make it into the movie, but he, Janet Yellen um, told Jim in an interview, it's you know in the, in the outtakes, 
that we somehow have to find a way to grow the economy without the assistance, without relying on asset bubbles. Um, something that we've kind of relied on since uh, the, the 1990s dot-com mania and then the housing bubble and now what we've you know called the everything bubble for the past uh, you know decade or so. Um, you know, you have to find a way to uh, not be reliant on monetary policy to try and stoke asset prices. You have to do it in a more fundamental way, and that is, you know, through through real, uh, you know, growth in in the economy. And I and I think, you know, the other side of this is the fact that, you know, the labor share of income has been in structural decline relative to corporate mm -hmm. profits for a long period of time. And yeah. so people have been making less less money. Their share of the pie, as Warren Buffett has called it, yep. has declined. Um, the average person's uh, has, you know, their share of the pie of the overall economy has declined. So you probably we're probably at an inflection point. I think, anyways, now where that's reversing and labor shares going to start to take more of that slice of the pie. And I think that will help in a lot of these areas. But it's not disinflationary. Yeah, it, well, it's, and it's interesting because when that happens, the first thing you do if you see wages go up is everyone freaking out and the Fed hiking rates to stop that from happening. I mean, it's seen, right. the knee-jerk reflex of that is seen as a negative because in the era we've been in, that has been the case. And people wonder why confidence in the Fed is, you know, a Gallup poll this week shows <clears throat> confidence in the Fed is its lowest ever recorded. <laughs> and it's because... People start, you know, the Fed creates inflation, and then when wages start picking up, they say, "Okay, no, now we got to crush crush wages." And and uh, so, you know, I, I think it we're going to if we continue down the path that we're on, um, you know, and this is something Warren Buffett wrote about twenty plus years ago in '99, 2000, that if the labor share continues to decline, we're going to get political problems, and I think mm -hmm. that's what we've started to see at last five, six years, this growth of populism and, and people voting for people they think are going to put their interests ahead of corporations, ahead of, uh, you know, things like that. And, and I think we're going to, those kinds of populist uh, sentiments are only going to grow unless we find a way to kind of uh, balance out the economy in a, in a more equitable way. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you say think that they are going to address the problem because right. no matter where you look, there's not a lot of substantive, you know, really deep economic policy discussion and thinking going on in political circles. There's a lot of re-election talk and election right. politics and very little else, which I think has frustrated an enormous amount of people. And that is a completely apolitical conversation right. or comment, by the way. That is yeah. just, you know, that is just how I see it. I, I uh, Edward says something very interesting. I, I love this expression too. If the economy goes into the soup, what choice does Powell have other than aggress aggressively cut and reinflate the bubble? I would add to that, 
based on what you just said, Jesse, is there monetary policy is one area, but there's fiscal too, right? I mean, it was always really supposed to be fiscal that was driving this. It wasn't supposed to be just up to the monetary authorities to address these issues, right? Right. I mean, and that's, you know, you could argue that that that's what the Federal Reserve felt like it had to do through, you know, in the post-GFC period was because fiscal couldn't get its act together that, you know, it was all put on the central bank to try and stimulate the economy. Um, I I do think that there's a good chance we are headed for a hard landing in the economy, and that will probably force uh, a pivot. but I think Jay Powell knows. I think uh, you know a lot of people, a lot of you know smart people in this business understand that if he does pivot, uh, there's a risk that inflation come becomes an even bigger problem down the road. And so I, I think you know it's it's a very difficult point, uh, you know, uh, dilemma that's uh, facing the Fed. And and for now, with unemployment extremely low, right. The Fed has executed on one side of the dual mandate, right? Full employment side. Is, I think by anybody's definition, we have full employment. The stable prices side, they're not. And so I think they have to maintain interest rates, a tightening posture, until you see, you know, you know, very compelling evidence that we are already in the midst of a hard landing. That that's potentially what could get you know Powell to to pivot. Yeah, that's interesting. And 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 that that lag of, you know, when we're going to get it show up in the data. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned hard landing. I, I We had Jeremy Schwartz on from Wisdom Tree uh, on the daily briefing yesterday, and he made the point that we haven't really begun to see the impact of this regional banking crisis. Let's have a listen to that clip and then we'll talk on the other side. You can tell the message is going that you know the, the bank le- the bank lending we've been saying could be as much as three or four hikes. You've got people like Torsten Slock who says six hikes. Like Torsten's been saying he's a chief economist from Apollo saying that the tightness in lending standards and Apollo knows something about lending. I mean, they do lending. And you know, he says it's it's 150 basis points. So six hikes. We say maybe three, maybe four, and some of the Fed were saying one. So we we definitely see what's going to happen in bank lending acting as another mitigating factor. Plus, we see the data, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about the lag data, the lag data in housing, that that's going to feed into much lower inflation. If they used updated data, they'd actually see they're right at their 2% target. I mean, I can't wait to update. We have an alt inflation series com- compared to the Fed in the BLS official inflation series. And, you know, my projections were showing that the core rate would be below 2 I thought that was so interesting. Um, and by the way, I'm not, ju- I, I don't believe wisdom tree. I don't know if they're calling for hard landing. I, I don't believe that. Um, just so we're clear on that. I'm not sure exactly what their call is, but they do, they, they are worried. Jeremy, for one, is worried about this, you know, this sort of when, when it starts to show up in the data and it's not maybe capturing what's happening in real time in the economy. Jesse, how are you thinking about, are we facing a credit squeeze that's going to hit the U.S. economy? And if so, how bad will it be? When do you expect it to show up? Like these are the bodies I think that you're talking about, right? Well, the, yeah, I mean, the, the bodies are, you know, would be more problems in, in um, you know, regional banks. I think even maybe, you know, so, you know private, um, private credit, you know, who knows where it's, where, where the Marshall next bodies estate. are going to show up. 
Yeah, but I but I do think the economy is is headed for a hard landing. All of the you know leading indicators you you you'd want to look at, whether it's you know the yield curve or you know composite of uh, oil price, interest rates, and the dollar. They all kind of point to uh, a significant poten- potential for a recession in the second half of this year. So you know I, I think we're he- we're headed that direction. Now, in terms of you know the Fed's mandate and you know what we saw in the clip there, the Fed's mandate, you know, just to be clear, is for stable prices. You know, the Fed interprets that as two percent inflation. I think technically it means zero percent inflation, um, but you know they're they're in charge and they say two. So you know to say that they're potentially hitting on their mandate when core inflation is still running five percent, you know, mm-hmm. plus year over year. I think is you know is tough. I, I I think you know the Fed has to see core inflation, and J, this is what JL said. You know they have to see it declining significantly for several months in a row before they can have any confidence that it's headed back towards two. So I think when we're still running double mandate, and you have things like sticky CPI, median CPI, trimmed mean CPI, all of these things are still very elevated, and suggesting that we're not going to get close to two anytime soon, that it has to maintain a tightening posture. That's what they're, and, and I think that's what they'll do until we start seeing that there's problems on the other side of the mandate, right? You start seeing unemployment rising and things due to the fact that we're we're in the midst of a hard landing. Then you can start talking about okay, the Fed needs to cut, um, but it, but it's usually right. I mean, too late. Uh, too late. Something's 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 you know, broken. Broken. The the famous phrase we use all the time. We're trying to figure out. So John read my mind and is asking exactly what I wanted to know: where to hide if the hard landing's coming, or what performs well in this environment. It's a great question because I normally. Would, you would say, okay, I, I want to buy a duration. I want to go into longer-term bonds, right? Uh, that the economy is going into a hard landing. And things like even the copper-to-gold ratio suggests that interest rates are, are potentially too high at the long end of the curve, that we could, you know, we should fall below three. It's interesting to me, though, that they haven't, right? That we have, you know, we're still well over three and a quarter on the 10-year. Uh, and until it breaks below that, I, you know, I think, you have to look at what's going on with supply and demand, right? The mm-hmm. Treasury needs to refill its coffers once the the uh, um, you know debt limit is is increased. Uh, they may have they have t- tons of new debt to sell. Uh, there's interest, right? I mean, this is the first time we've had interest rates ab- above you know uh, uh, inflation for a long time, but that's mainly at the short end of the curve. When you look at, you know, do I want to go three and a quarter for 10 years when inflation is, you know, I don't have a lot of confidence that Powell might, is going to hold the line on inflation in 10 years from now. Inflation could be even more of a problem than it is today. It's hard to get excited about bonds. Um, you know, obviously stocks don't, you know, if, if stocks, if we're going into hard landing, earnings are going to decline significantly than we've seen. That's not good for the stock market. So I think, Generally, I think we talked about this the last time I was on, Maggie, was we're in the early stages of a longer term commodities super cycle. Um, in the short run, a hard landing is going to be bearish for potentially things like oil and, and copper. But longer term, the supply demand for these things is inordinately bullish. Uh, and so I think you have to look at opportunities to, to you know, buy the dip in, in commodity uh, focused areas. 
And, uh, you know, precious metals, I think, are, are maybe the most interesting area in the market right now and getting zero interest from the mainstream media and investors, which to me is even more bullish. Yeah. So we have, I think you sent over um, a chart on that. And I love the the, the story count I, because I have to tell you, um, I mean, I don't know. This goes, I think the story count might go back to, to last year as well. But anecdotally this year, every single person that we talked to at the beginning of the year in January wanted to talk about gold, every single person. And then that was it. Like it, it vanished, you know? So why do you track that? That's so interesting to me. Well, actually, I I have to be honest. I stole this chart from uh, Nick Reese. Uh, I retweeted, uh, or actually I tweeted his chart with full credit to him. (laughs) It was fascinating to me. It really mirrors, you know, when you look at things like ETF flows, right? We've seen gold prices really uh, take off since, you know, the end of, you know, last fall, right? Um, You know, from about 1600 to over 2000. And we've seen no no flows into gold ETFs whatsoever. Uh, it's essentially, you know, you look back at those two previous times, you know, gold attempted to break out above 2000, which was a little over a year ago, and then back in the middle of 2020. And, you know, the amount of interest that it that garnered was just off the charts, right? You had 100,000 news stories a month, and ETF flows were off the charts. The fact that we're testing uh, 2000 again, uh, you know, trying to break out, and there's zero interest is is a sign to me that uh, a very bullish contrarian um, sentiment signal that uh, you know my friend Peter Atwater uh, likes to say media reflects mood and if the, mm-hmm. if that's the case here then the media is reflecting total you know nonchalance no interest at all in precious metals which which would be very bullish for for a potential breakout here. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Are they are, are people not interested in it because they think it's had its run? Or is that too backward looking? I think, you know, what I keep hearing is a triple top uh, in the gold price. But you, uh, well, if you look at that chart, you can understand why people might be thinking that. Yeah, you know that's not a uh, a common technical pattern that I ever <laughs> come across. He's making it up. <laughs> um, I mean, a, a double top, yes. A triple top. I mean, the more times you test a, a support or resistance area, the weaker it gets. And so I, I think we're getting close to breaking out above uh, that two thousand level. And you look back at the the previous cycle, right? Gold prices bottomed in August of twenty eighteen, about six months ahead of the the original Powell pivot. Right, gold prices anticipated that the Fed was going to be done uh, with its rate hiking cycle. When it was done, you know, when it was clear that Powell was done, gold prices started to to really take off. And I think we're at a very similar point in the cycle here, where gold prices bottomed about you know six months, you know, maybe a little bit longer this time ahead of the Fed being done of uh, done with its rate hiking cycle. Once it becomes clearer that that Powell is not going to raise anymore, it becomes obvious. Um, it's no longer a question. We can see gold prices really take off like they did in 2019 and 2020. You know, it's so interesting. So Roger uh, in the chat just said, no one wants to buy at these highs. Everyone's waiting for a pullback in gold. Very interesting uh, because I'm wondering what everyone's time frame is. And maybe you can tell us your time frame, Jesse, because I would think if you're really short term, maybe you're doing that, but you're talking about a longer term trend you're seeing. Does time frame matter when you're thinking about prices like that? I think, you know, 
waiting for uh, yeah i i've oh, been just buying how do, you, how do you respond to that as from you know from a trading strategy point of view well from a standpoint i i do think we could see a, a a little consolidation period for gold before it does officially break out when you look at that price analog uh chart that i that i shared um, that's that's what we saw in early 2019 right piece the pr prices peaked in february of 2019 and kind of pulled back for a little while before they finally broke out above that 1350 level uh, in 2019. I think we could see potentially something similar here. But, you know, with the the problems in the banking system and with the the, uh, the debt limit issue kind of looming, um, if anything kind of goes wrong in, in either of those areas, gold prices could, could break out at, at any time. Uh, gold is really kind of the, uh, the the only safe haven, I think, right now. Normally, people would, you know, in a risk-off period, would look to buy dollars. But, you know, if we're in the midst of a, a debt limit issue or something like that, you know, the dollar might not be the safe haven that it once was, and people will be looking for an alternative. The only clear alternative, I think, is is gold. Oh, very interesting. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to be, what's your feeling about the debt ceiling? Because as we march up to it, people usually say, oh, it's nothing. It's a bunch of drama in D.C. It's ugly. It's unfortunate, but it will get resolved at the 11th hour. Is that how you think about it? Or is that is there a little bit too much complacency yeah. in that? I think that's the most likely, you know, outcome, and that's why the markets are so comfortable discounting it, is because it's the most probable thing. But when you look at, when you actually listen to what they're saying in in Washington, you have the White House saying they're waiting potentially for some market volatility to spur Republicans into a into a more favorable kind of negotiating position for the White House. Conversely, the Republicans are kind of waiting for some sort of market, uh, uh, potentially market volatility, market event to communicate to the White House, you need to, you, you need to budge. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like they're both waiting for markets to say, OK, we're really starting to worry about this before they come closer together in terms of some type of negotiation. So what that that type, type of market signal needs to be is anybody's guess. I mean, it could be another breakout higher in interest rates across the curve. It could be uh, just volatility in stocks, you know, stocks rolling over hard, kind of like they did in 2011. Either way, I think, you know, people aren't necessarily uh, appreciating the fact that I think both sides are waiting for markets to to start getting nervous. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a game. It's a dangerous game of chicken. Um, politicians always think they can play it skillfully. But, um, you know, these are complicated markets. By the way, just passing along something we were just talking about internally, um, Libby Cantrell from PIMCO, I heard her talking er earlier today, and she was talking about May 26 as the line in the sand, not June 1st, because Congress mm -hmm. breaks for Memorial Day. And in the in the week leading up to that, um, she was just musing that, you know, that's when you have the potential, if there does not seem to be resolution to the market, start to send that signal. Um, so just passing that along, I think that was a, I thought that was a great observation she made. So watch out for that. I think it starts the week of the 22nd. Just watch out if there's not, you know, real movement in that area. You could start to see some ripples as, because we know that the markets will telegraph their, um, their outrage about that if it, if it's not being resolved. Uh, question coming in from Trillion X. Um, uh, Jesse, don't you think yields are higher for longer? Would that then mean that tech would have to derate from here as the sector has discounted a much lower yield environment? 
we've seen tech be on fire. I mean, that was not the call at the beginning of the year. It's narrow, but it's been pretty impressive. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? If I, when I look at the top five biggest tech stocks on the market, you put them together. Um, I don't know if they're still the top five, but it's Microsoft, Apple, uh, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Alphabet. I put them together and you look at the price relative to their total free cash flow, total market cap to total free cash flow. These stocks trade 65 times aggregate free cash flow. That's a multiple, and and they're all none of them are really growing anymore. You look at Alphabet and Meta, you know they're they're all at zero percent revenue growth. Apple zero percent revenue growth. Um, so you know I think for investors to be right, paying sixty five times uh, free cash flow for these this group, they either need to return to rapid growth, like we saw during the pandemic, which was really spurred by work from home trade. Everybody needed new laptop, a new phone, you know, all these things and advertise the fact that, you know, takeout restaurants, I mean, it was just a, a huge uh, boom for these companies. They either need that kind of massive revenue growth again, or they need zero percent interest rates again, or some combination of both. Because if interest rates do stay elevated and the revenue growth doesn't pick up, yeah, there's gonna, there could be a significant re-rating. The last 10 years, the average multiple for these companies is 30. So if they just go back to your average multiple of free cash flow, um, you could have a, a significant decline even without a decline in, in their actual fundamentals. Yeah, this is where everyone's everyone's puzzling about AI, right? Because you'll notice all of those names have a sort of an AI component to them. I'm laughing because, I mean, it's everywhere. Carl um, asked if I was a real person. And you're not the first one, Carl. No, I'm not a bot <laughs> or an AI-generated uh, person. Um, but it really, I'm laughing because it, it's everywhere. It's what everyone's talking about. And I think everyone wondering, is AI that big revolution in tech um, we know it's going to change the way we operate. Is it going to draw the revenues in? That's a, those are big unknowns, aren't they, Jesse? Absolutely. And I think from from my standpoint, I think people don't appreciate, I think people are also discounting here that, that AI is going to allow these big tech companies to reinforce their moats. Yeah. Uh, and Great in point. fact, it's an area, I think, where they're competing more head to head with each other. I think for the last 10 plus years, they've all kind of had their own sandboxes to operate in, and they've had very little overlap, and that's allowed them to, to generate massive profits. But now you have, you know, Amazon and web services, Google, Microsoft are now competing in that area pretty significantly. You have uh, digital advertising, right, Meta and, and Alphabet. Amazon's now getting into advertising, and now they're all, they all want to compete together against each other in AI. And you know that type of competition usually uh, results in some sort of creative destruction, rather than in reinforcing you know the type of profits that they've had. So I think people might be underestimating the uh, destructive potential of AI for for these companies. And even you know I, I think it was a Discord page or something came out with a Google engineer who said, "Look, yeah. we have no moat when it comes to AI." Yep. Um, we don't have any way, any proprietary, um, and, and that's probably true for each one of these companies. If you don't have anything proprietary and you don't have, you know, patents and things to 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 build on, uh, it's very difficult to see how you're going to protect profit margins and uh, protect against competition in that area. So, I think it's a wonderful source of competition. We're going to see some amazing products. I just don't know that it's going to be the source of revenue growth and profits that the other things have been for these companies. 
great, great observation that not enough people are making. I think that's something we're going to be talking a lot about. Um, I, I love that. Arms races are expensive, <laughs> right? Absolutely. And you, you know, I mean, and, yeah. and that's what people are saying we're in. One more I'm going to squeeze in, even though we're almost out of time, because two different people are asking about this. Um, it goes back to gold. Um, the question, are you not considering crypto, more specifically Bitcoin, over other commodities, if you're bullish commodities, or um, in a similar correlation to gold, obviously some regulatory risks they're acknowledging, but um, how are you thinking about that? Digital assets, maybe Bitcoin. For me, you know, I, I've looked at it uh, in, a, in a lot of different ways, and to me, the for the last I don't know ten plus years, Bitcoin has had its highest correlation to the Nasdaq 100. Um, it's not very correlated to uh, non, you know, uh, for to real assets, commodities, gold prices. It trades like a risk asset, and uh, if if it continues to trade like a risk asset, and we have a hard landing, it, I think it's going to perform more like a lot of these unprofitable, non-profitable tech stocks than uh, a true safe haven like like the gold or silver price. Fantastic, Jesse! Great conversation. So wonderful to catch up with you again. We've got a lot we've got to keep our eye on. So we appreciate your insight. Thanks, Maggie. Always appreciate talking with you. And great questions. Great questions from everyone. Uh, I, Ash will be with you tomorrow. I'm going to be in D.C. actually talking about digital asset regulation, if you can believe that. And um, But we'll be back on Friday for the extended. So thank you so much for your time. And as always, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.